Good morning again. I invite you to take your Bibles, if you wouldn't, open to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. In the Pew Bible, it's page 448. Page 448 in the Pew Bible. We looked last week at Psalm 1. We're looking at Psalm 2 this morning. And that's a, uh, their companion psalms, and we'll see that together next week. We'll be back in Mark and the home stretch. Uh, a few more weeks in the Gospel of Mark uh, to wrap that up here in the next few weeks. So if you found your way to Psalm 2, let's pray together. Father, we give thanks that you are seated on your throne. Lord, that you saw fit to send your son as the promised son of David, and Lord, which we'll look at this morning, how the king that you have set up over creation is the perfect one. And Lord, though nations rage and people plot and they scheme and they set their hearts against you, Lord, they will not overcome you, but rather you are sovereign over all and you have, Lord, set up the perfect one to rule over us. Lord, we give thanks for that. Lord, help us now as we look at Psalm 2 to remind ourselves of the need to submit ourselves and to kiss the Son. Lord, to honor Him as King, to live for Him. We pray in His name. Amen. If you have your Bible open to Psalm 2, please follow along as I read the passage this morning. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. It's very clearly associated with the Messiah. We see that in verse 2 when the psalmist records for us the anointed. That term is translated as anointed. It could be translated as Messiah. And as we read through the psalm, it's very clearly seen that this king that is set up by the Lord is not just any human king, but rather his own son, the one who is the perfect son of David. And we think of a lot of kings, or we might think of a lot of different kings, whether real or fiction, right? King Arthur is a, uh, is a classic fiction king. Some of you are probably well-known with the cinematic masterpiece, The Sword and the Stone, uh, the Disney movie, or perhaps you're familiar with the actual novel, The Once and Future King. There's, of course, kings from the Bible, King David, King Saul. There's kings from history, King George III, as we think of with the American Revolution. There's King Louis XIV in France and all the opulence that was the French monarchy. 
And then for those of you fantasy nerds, there's Aragorn from Lord of the Rings who becomes the king in a very aptly titled Return of the King. It's interesting when we think of kings, it's, it's either they're good or they're bad, right? As Americans, we think of the monarchy and we think of kings and, and Britain and we think of throwing off that, that unjust rule by King George III in the American Revolution. But then there are good kings. When there are bad kings, society and culture and people, they seem to fall apart and things aren't good. But when there's a good king, whether it's in real life or portrayed through fiction and entertainment, we see how the the kingdom flourishes, it blossoms, and there is great blessing. You never see a king that's just meh, right? It's like, he's kind of good, kind of all right. He's just meh. It's either a bad king or a really good king. (laughs) But as we come to Psalm 2, we are presented with, in a sense, two groups of kings, or, or, or one king and then all the other kings. We have the, the nations and their rulers and really the individuals of those nations. And they are set against the one true king, the, the Lord's anointed, the one who God has set up over his kingdom, who has given all of creation to. And as we come to Psalm 2, we see this interaction from our own hearts towards this king, this anointed one who is set up by the Lord. Our big idea this morning is this, is that God calls us to lay down our arms and kiss the son who is his anointed king over all the earth. God calls us to lay down our arms, the, the, that imagery of laying down your weapons to submit in a sense defeat or the fact that someone has control over you, to lay down our arms and to kiss the son, which we'll look at that phrase in verse 12. And why are we called to lay down our arms and to kiss the sun? Well, it's because this one is the anointed king over all the earth. Because of the pride of nations and of individuals striving against the Lord and his anointed, they are seeking to run their own kingdom where the Lord says, no, I am the one who is sovereign and in control. So let's look here. And we're going to look at four ways, uh, whether why we should lay down our arms or why people don't lay down their arms. And it divides rather nicely here in Psalm 2. As you look in your Bible, I'm sure you can see there are four sets of three verses. So you have verses 1 through 3, 4 through 6, 7 through 9, 10 through 12. This is the, the form of the Hebrew prayer sheet. You have these, in a sense, verses or refrains here. And each set of three, uh, three verses uh, has an idea with it. And so we're going to look at that this morning. So as we come to Psalm 2, this is a continuation really of thought from Psalm 1. At the very end of Psalm 2, we read the phrase, blessed are all who take refuge in him. And this connects all the way very uh, back to the very beginning of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked and so on and so forth. And as the contrast is in Psalm 1 between the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous, we come to Psalm 2, and, and this is really fleshed out. You have the way of those who are wicked, who set themselves against the Lord and his anointed, and then there are those who submit to the Lord's anointed, to his king. And really, this is building a whole worldview for us, that those who submit to the Lord and his plan and his will, 
are blessed. And those who don't, judgment awaits them. So let's hear, look here at Psalm 2 and how this calls us to lay down our arms and kiss the sun. The first reason why people don't or we may not lay down our arms is because pride prohibits us. Number one, pride prohibits those who don't lay down their arms. Verse one, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? This is a great uh, introduction to this psalm. Why do the nations rage? I think that's a great phrase as we look at the world and at the geopolitical climate. Nations are always raging. There's always unrest. There's always some form of conflict that is not resolved among the nations. And here the psalmist says, why do the nations rage and, and the people's plot in vain? It's not only just the nations as a, as a cumulative group, but the, the individuals of the nations as, as individual people, they, they plot And why are they raging and why are they plotting in vain? What is the, the, their adversary or enemy here? Well, it's in verse two. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. So they are plotting They take counsel together. These rulers do. Well, why? What's their aim? Well, they have set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, against his Messiah. The nations and the peoples rage. They plot in vain because they conspire together against the Lord. Why is that? Why do they conspire together against the Lord? Verse 3. They say this, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Through this, in a sense, quote from these individuals, they are showing that they want the sovereign power and oversight of the Lord taken away from them. These idea of cords and bonds are things that you tie something up with or you control something with. The idea of controlling an animal, a leash on a dog, they want to burst these things apart. They, they want to be free, in a sense, from the Lord's control. They think that they have the right to determine and to be sovereign in their own lives, over their own nations, over their own doings. They want to reject God fully and completely. Why? Because of their own pride. Their pride prohibits them from laying down their arms because they in a sense, feel the need to fight against the Lord, to strive against them because they want what they want. It's hard work, they think. You got to strive against the Lord. They've set their hearts against him. And this goes all the way back to the very beginning of creation with Satan himself. He wanted to be like God and he rebelled. He wanted to throw off the God-ordained created order that he sovereignly and wisely and justly in all of his goodness set up. And in doing so, he fell from this position as one of the Lord's most beautiful creatures, Satan did. And in his fall, then he took others with him and then he enticed Adam and Eve. And and in their own sin, they have rejected and rebelled against the Lord. That's the whole issue with sin. It's rebellion against God. It's saying, God, you are not in control. I want to be in control. I want to be God. I want to be in charge, not you. I want to do how I think and I feel should be done, not what you say. This is why the nations rage against the Lord. 
They want to throw off, quote unquote, these shackles that they feel are there. They'd rather do things their own way than submitting to the good and sovereign care of God. And while we look at these verses, we think, well, yeah, we think of a lot of nations that are striving against God. And we see this clearly. They despise the Lord and his rule. But this is also present in each one of our own hearts, in our own little kingdom that we try and set up. And we rage in our own hearts against the Lord saying, no, 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 this nation is striving against you, God. All of us rage against the Lord in our own pride. We want to do things our way in our time for our benefit always instead of submitting ourselves to the plan and will of God. We see nations and individuals fighting against the Lord and think, why? I'll tell you why. Pride. They want things their way. The desire to be God rather than to worship God. Pride prohibits us. Pride prohibits nations from laying down their arms. Because we, in our own pride, want to fight for our own kingdom. But there's warning. Second point here is that judgment awaits those who don't lay down their arms. Judgment awaits those who don't lay down their arms. Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Have you ever play fought against a small child and they come at you with their arms swinging and you're big enough that you can hold your hand out and hold them by the forehead and they're just swinging their arms. And generally you're laughing when that's happening, right? <laughs> or maybe you take their arm and like quit hitting yourself, right? Every dad or grandpa has done that. It's just a rite of passage. Happened to me, I do it to my son, right? The Lord laughs at them because of his complete and sovereign control over them. They are in a sense like a small child trying to swing and hit, hit, hit this, this large man who has complete control over them, whether it's a, a dad or a grandpa, and, and it's laughing. It's like, oh, that's cute. Look at you trying to fight. Oh, man. <laughs> the Lord laughs at them because they think that they have all this power, that they even have the ability to fight against him. And it says that he sits in the heavens. Even that phrase, in the heavens, communicates how high and lifted up he is above all these nations. He holds them in derision. I mean, he mocks them. Verse five, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. This is language of judgment, of coming doom. He speaks to them in his wrath. This is not a, hey, here's what I'm gonna do. This is a, no, because of what you're doing, I'm gonna pour out my judgment. I'm gonna terrify you in this fury. And what is the demonstration of his judgment? Verse six, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The Lord says, you kings and nations and people who are raging against me, who want to live your own little kingdoms, I'm going to put a king in my city, on my holy hill. It's the idea here of possession, that the Lord is the one who's going to decide who rules and reigns. But judgment is coming for you. This is not a exciting thing to those who are raging. It's in his wrath. It's in terror and fury. This is, this is language of judgment. And this judgment is expressed through the placing a king on Zion. That term Zion is synonymous with Jerusalem or the dwelling place of God, God's holy city. It's the idea of his location where he acts. 
As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The Lord is going to demonstrate judgment over these nations through his own king that he decides. The Lord will deal with those who have set themselves against him. He is not indifferent. He is not ambivalent. He does not forget nor scared, but will through his own wise and sovereign plan bring about judgment to, through the ruler of his own choosing. Judgment awaits those who don't lay down their arms. But now we transition here in, in the middle of this psalm in verse 7 to the end, and, and there, there's a switch. The first two uh, brackets here or points demonstrate the pride and the judgment that's coming, but now we see how the Lord is going to demonstrate that, but there's going to be an opportunity to respond in faith. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Our third point here is that Christ mercifully rules those who lay down their arms. In this third stanza here of Psalm 2, the psalmist describes the appointment of Jesus. I will tell the decree, the Lord said to me, and there's all... Many, many layers going on right here in these next couple of verses. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. This is a kingly psalm. It references kingship and, and the Lord's sovereign hand in setting up rulers. But it's also a messianic psalm to where it clearly points forward to the anointed, to the, the Lord's chosen messiah and this psalm is quoted all over the new testament along with psalm 110 which is uh, almost a reiteration of the psalm of of this son of david who is really the son of god being placed on the throne and that this son is a fulfillment of so many promises made to the nation of israel to david himself going all the way back to the garden of eden and we need to see this, that God's plan from the very beginning in redemption is to bring about his rule and his reign on earth in his creation through his chosen king. And he is doing this here through the anointed. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. That language clearly points to Jesus. You are my son. We hear that phrase alluded to in the baptism, in the transfiguration. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved son. Today I have begotten you. And he says of this in verse 8, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. This idea is seen in 1 Corinthians 15 when Jesus is, is raised from the dead and then we think about his second coming. It says that all of his enemies will be put under his feet like a footstool. All the earth is the kingdom of of Christ. It's not just a certain location, but it's the entirety of all of God's creation will be subject to him. And he will rule over them. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. He's referring to those who are raging against the Lord in verses 1 through 6. But in the giving of this son, there is mercy. Because this is a fulfillment of all these promises to David. 
to Abraham, to Eve, all the way back in the garden, the seed of the woman. This is the seed here that has been promised. This psalm is, is reminding us of who is in control and how does he demonstrate this control. God is in control and he demonstrates this through his own sovereign power in the sending of his son and setting up Jesus as the perfect eternal son of David who will rule and reign forever. It's why we read from Colossians 1 that we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Those of us who know Christ, that we are no longer in darkness and and raging like the nations, but rather we have submitted ourselves to Christ and we are part of his kingdom. As Pastor James read for us from Revelation, and Revelation is full of that military imagery of the enemies of God, one last gasp, one last fight against the Lord that they think that they might be able to win, but they can't. And the Lord Jesus comes as King of Kings and Lord of Lords riding on a horse with a sword to bring about judgment against those nations that are one last time raging against the Lord. But Christ mercifully rules those who lay down their arms. He is the one sent from God. God doesn't say, well, I'm going to do away with you kings. I'm going to set up my king and my king is just going to be like you. I'm so thankful that God is not like me. I'm so thankful that Jesus, though he is 100% man, he's also 100% God. And that the ruler that God has chosen to rule over us is his son who will rule perfectly. Oftentimes, we look at authority. And when authority is abused, and authority is bad, and they're not very good at being authorities, our sinful nature is to reject all authority. But God has designed authority into creation. He has placed it there. It's part of his created order. And when those who are ruling and demonstrating authority do so perfectly, you see how it flourishes. And when King Jesus is on the throne and he's demonstrating perfect authority, there's going to be great amounts of blessing. And we will not buck against that kingship, that sovereignty, but rather we will willingly and lovingly submit to him and say, yes, my king, what do you call me to do? What do you want me to do? How do you want me to live? What's my responsibility in serving you and submitting myself to you? This is the one that the Lord's going to set up. And lastly, this idea accompanies that one. Our fourth point is this, is that blessing comes to those who lay down their arms. The end of the psalm gives an opportunity for those who have set themselves against the Lord. The call is to be wise and to fear the Lord, to serve him and be warned. Look at verse 10. He says, now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Even in God's judgment, he is demonstrating his mercy or deliverance. He's saying, oh, kings, be wise. If you truly are a wise ruler, you will listen. You will be warned, O rulers of the earth. And what is the call here? Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Serve the Lord with fear 
Not fear in a sense of I'm afraid, but rather this is a proper respect or submission to the authority into the goodness and power of the one that you are serving. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Verse 12, kiss the son. This is a very striking phrase, right? Kiss the son. Why kiss the son? Well, we can think of several different things. Uh, kissing the son is a term of endearment, of intimacy. It's the idea of having an affection towards that. So when we kiss the son, it's saying we are not raging against him, but rather we are having a desire or delight in him. But also there's imagery that's also involved from the Near East of, of, of a king who would have a ring and they would come and they would kiss the ring to demonstrate submission to uh, that ruler. We don't know necessarily exactly, is it kiss the ring? Is it a, uh, on, on the cheek or, or what kind of uh, ceremonial uh, reference this is making? But it's very clear that this idea of, of kiss the sun is a response of submission and honoring the sun. Kiss the sun. One of the pastors we served with up in Minnesota, he, he would often use this phrase with us as pastors. As we were meeting as a staff or talking about things and something might be going on and we'd be working through something and even in our own personal lives and he'd look at us and he'd go, are you kissing the sun right now? Just, oh. <laughs> but the imagery is clear. It's we are setting up our own kingdom, raging against Christ rather than submitting to him and saying, no, you're right, you have control. And we are to kiss the son in verse 12, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For if you don't, there is judgment that's coming. There's, there's perishing that's coming. That's the same word that's used in verse 6 of Psalm 1. The way of the wicked will perish. Those who do not kiss the son will perish. For his wrath is quickly kindled. He's a good, just, sovereign king. But he will not stand rebellion against him. And so he calls us to lay down our arms and to kiss the son. And the final promise is this. It just says, blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. There is blessing associated with taking refuge in Christ. This comes full circle from the very beginning of Psalm 1. Embracing the true ruler and giving up striving against him. There is blessing when we do that. Blessing and taking refuge in the Son. It's interesting, this idea of kissing the Son. There are people who have recorded in the New Testament that physically kissed Jesus. Several individuals who kissed his feet. We're going to be looking at that here in a few weeks in the Gospel of Mark of breaking open the ointment and, and anointing Jesus and, and kissing his feet and using hair. Like It's a very, very humiliating act, but that idea of kissing his feet even is, is one of, of submission to him. But there's also another kiss in the New Testament that didn't turn out so well. When they come to the garden, they said, how will we know which one is the Messiah? And what does Judas say? 
the one whom I give a kiss to. It's interesting of the parallel there, even that idea of connecting that even throughout Scripture. If Judas was even aware of any of the, the, the uh, biblical thought in that of, of Psalm 2 versus to what he was doing. Kiss the Son. Kiss the Son. Submit yourself. Lay down your arms. So we've been talking about kings and nations and rulers, but yet on an individual basis, as I already mentioned, each one of us loves to set up our own little kingdom and our own little rule in our own life, saying that this is mine, I do with it as I please. But rather, the call is to submit ourselves daily to Christ, to kiss the Son. Submitting to the Son is not yielding to another despotic, fickle, earthly ruler, but submitting to the perfect, loving, good, and just Son of God. Blessing is on all those who take refuge in Him. Kiss the Son. There are two types of people in this world, those who submit and follow Christ and those who rage against Him. You want to classify people. You want to use identity politics and you want to categorize and put all these people together. I have two categories for you. You either love Jesus and kiss the Son or you rage against Him. You either believe in Him or you don't. And the question then is today, is where are you at? What kingdom are you submitting yourself to? To your own, to your pride, raging against him? Or are you kissing the sun? Sometimes the raging is against, is clear and evident. You can look at someone and you can say, oh yeah, they are very clearly setting themselves against God and his plan. We all know of people. You can even think of different people and the choices that they make and say, they are truly not walking with the Lord. They are fighting against them. But how many of us have an inward attitude that is not perceivable by anybody else? But it's comments that run through our minds. It's actions that maybe no one else sees in which we are setting ourselves against Christ. The question is, will you lay down your arms and submit to him? Warning, being warned that there is judgment coming for those who do not. But if you kiss the sun and lay down your arms, blessing is on all those who take refuge in him. So just as we are called as to delight in God through his word, when we delight in his word, we will see that we are called to lay down our arms and submit to him, for he is the perfect king, the one who has come to rule and reign the one who deserves our allegiance. Father, we give thanks this morning for this reminder from Psalm 2. Lord, how nations can rage and people can rage and even each one of us in our own ways can rage against you, Lord. And we, we pray that you would help us fight that. Lord, that we would not set ourselves up as God in our lives, but rather we, we would submit to you. Lord, help us to work through that and to constantly be checking our own heart and motives for that. Lord, we give you thanks for the forgiveness that's found in Christ and the offer to anyone to come and to kneel and to confess and to repent and to trust in him as their Savior. Lord, we thank you for the blessing that is present for those of us who take refuge in him. Pray in your son's name.